Amen. Good morning. Judges chapter 6. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that the, the river of your spirit, the life of the spirit, would just minister this morning. Would you fill us? Lord, some of us have things in our souls, thorns and, and kind of snares where we've been trapped. Would you deliver us today? We worship you as King of kings, Lord of lords. No one like you in the heavens or on the earth. But bring your adoration. Use us, we pray. In Jesus' name, somebody say amen. Amen. Well, lots of religions practice pilgrimages. Obviously, um, Muslims pilgrim to Mecca. Buddhists travel to Nepal to the birthplace of their founder. Christianity has always been considered a pilgrimage, but not to a physical location. A pilgrimage to a to a, a place in your soul where you become what what the gospel calls Christ-like, and so throughout Christian history, there's always been pilgrimage language, pilgrim language used to describe not a journey to a destination, but a journey to a a posture in my soul where I know Jesus, look like Jesus, experience the life that flows only from Jesus. The, the bestseller for years was called the, uh, the Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. You remember the Pilgrim's Progress where John Bunyan is, um, painting this picture of a young man named Christian who meets someone named Evangelist. This is just allegory, right? Uh, who leads him to go and try to find a celestial city. And throughout the journey, he gets tangled in like the slough of despond. And there's this constant, um, trap and snare and there are guides that come into the story and John Bunyan who is a brilliant preacher and a brilliant author is using this imagery to describe the way in which every Christian is is journeying towards uh, not just heaven I think we often think that way that we're journeying life towards heaven as a location and, and of course that's kind of true but we're, we're journeying towards Christ's likeness and eternal life is not something we just possess in heaven but it's something that um, possesses us in this life. Are you guys following that thought? And so John Bunyan's trying to describe the way in which the Christian is learning to possess eternal life, to be fully given to Jesus, not just to a location, but to a posture of the heart. Well, C.S. Lewis, when he came to faith, remember he was already teaching at Oxford. The first book he wrote after salvation was called The Pilgrim's Regress. So John Bunyan wrote The Pil Pilgrim's Progress, and Lewis, he writes this book called The Pilgrim's Regress, where he's um, using the same kind of imagery. It's about a young man named John. Instead of progressing towards Christ-likeness, he's going the wrong way, and he's searching after this island that um, he perceives would give him life. And the entire story is kind of about backsliding. And uh, Lewis is describing his his journey, his own journey, because he, he was raised in a Christian home, but for like his teenage years on, he was an atheist agnostic looking for life and all the wrong places. And so C.S. Lewis wrote The Pilgrim's Regress. And the truth that we find in Scripture, the truth that we find in Christian literature throughout history is that you you are on a pilgrimage. And you are either progressing or regressing, period. Like, there's, there's really no in-between. I wish there were. Like, we like to think of the idea of spiritual naps, but they just seem to not exist. Like, you're either coming or going. And this morning, we're, we're going to look at Israel and, and 
in a sense, we need to take a step into the book of Judges and try to understand where Israel is and what's going on. And what we find Israel doing in Judges is progressing and regressing, progressing and regressing. You could call that circling the mountain. You could call that two steps forward, one step back. But they are in this state of constantly having encounters with God where it feels like they're taking a step forward only to backslide again. And the text of Scripture is using Israel to display for us Are you guys with me? I feel like everybody's so sleepy today. You need me to throw something or like dance? I can do it. Shoot, I dance. Boy, I dance like you've never seen. The text of scripture is using Israel's history to show us something about the state of humanity. For some reason, spiritual progress requires leaning in. It requires... Um, discipline, it requires intentionality and intimacy with the Father and daily feeding on the Scripture. Spiritual progress requires, there's a cost that comes with it. Spiritual regress just comes naturally, man. The prophet Jeremiah and and the Proverbs use this language, and and the KJV it translates um, as backsliding. We don't talk about backsliding a lot these days, but A.W. Tozer talks about being a young man growing up on a farm and every now and then seeing like a young heifer trying to climb a muddy hill and then sliding back down. And that's the imagery of backsliding. It's like an ox trying to work its way up some slope, but because of the slippery undergirding, it just falls and all. You ever seen an animal that just works harder and harder and they just get more and more stuck? And that seems to be at times our state. We're, we're digging, trying, and then eventually you just kind of lay down and give up because you're so stuck. It's, just, it's a plain biblical truth. So Jeremiah says that God wants to heal the backsliding of Israel. And, and Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 15 through 16, look carefully how then you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time because days are evil. Why Why is it that we naturally slide downwards? Why is it that we naturally regress? And Paul seems to answer the question by saying this time. The days are evil. Now everything in us like rises up and goes, days are all moral, Paul. They can't be evil. Like saying math is evil. Like it just is. There's no... There's no Ethical. I don't know if you've heard that said, but it's been said. Modern culture is getting real. Can I say stupid from a pulpit? I don't know if that's allowed or not. They didn't teach that in Bible school, whether or not you're allowed to say stupid. Why is it that the days are evil? Not because the days themselves are evil, but because time is opportunity and time without intentionality will always produce regress. So Paul says, be careful then how you walk. What is he saying? What does it mean to be careful? It means to have intentionality, purpose, direction. Because the the time creates opportunity. And then Paul says in Romans 12, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed. So there's a pattern of this world that wants to conform you, wants to shape you, wants to produce you in its image. And it has time. 
And if you're not careful, that will produce regress, backsliding. Our culture wants to disciple us. The entertainment industry, for some odd reason, they think that they're the greatest philosophers of the age. Like they're bringing all of their ideals and ideologies, and it's just like, man, read a book. Study history for five minutes, and you'll realize the patterns that we're producing are wicked. Proverbs 14, 14, the backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways, and a good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. So we are pilgrims. You are a pilgrim, becoming more like Christ and united with Christ in intimacy and in his life, death, and resurrection. Or you are a pilgrim regressing, heading in the wrong direction, producing the wrong fruit, not being careful and wise in your path. You are either one or the other end in a room this size. It's obvious that some of us here are regressing. It's just plain statistical truth. And I know statistics. That's a joke. Um, some of us here are backsliding. And I would suggest that I know that this might sound a bit harsh. All of us here have either experienced it or will experience it. Like if you think that you're beyond, that John Bunyan was a brilliant, wonderful Christian. And he talks about the slough of despond and the temptation to compromise. Like one of the most, he spent like long years in jail just reading the scripture. And he still says, in my life, I have a temptation to compromise, to become complacent to become uh, in love or enamored with the things of this world. The greatest Christian struggle. And so we have to think about what this means on our journey to progress into Christ's likeness or to regress into the image of this world. And Judges shows us over and over again that Israel takes two steps forward and one step back. Every time they make progress and then they get lazy or complacent or they they just kind of lay down they slide now let's read judges chapter 6 verse 1 through 11 the people of israel did what was evil in the sight of the lord and the lord gave them into the hand of midian seven years And the hand of midian overpowered israel and because of midian the people of israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever Israel planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number, but they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. And I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods 
of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now, anytime when you pick up a story, like in chapter six, it might be smart to think about where you are. Judges, just get on the same page. Remember, Israel's leadership was Moses out of Egypt towards Canaan, was Joshua through uh, the conquest. Joshua brought them into Canaan. And now before Saul, the first king, Israel has this period called the Judges. So in between Joshua and Saul, the first king, we have these judges. Now, these judges are not wearing white wigs with powder and sitting in a courtroom, although that would be awesome. Um, they're, they're more like these prophet kind of militaristic. They, they do talk about righteousness and justice, but a lot of times they're, they're bringing um, deliverance from military opponents. And so we're in this period of judges. Now, when we look at chapter 5, you know, the chapter before six, what we find is um, a long song that that a judge named Deborah, the only female judge, and a man named Barak sang as they found victory from their oppressor, primarily a man named Sisera. Now, the scripture says that Sisera cruelly oppressed the Israelites. And so this man from the land of Canaan named Sisera was oppressing Israel for years, cruelly oppressing Deborah tells Barak that they should go to battle. Barak is a little nervous. And so Deborah goes with and says, uh, by the way, a woman will bring you deliverance. They chase Sisera off and he comes into a woman's tent who lures him with a cup of milk. And then as he falls asleep, she drives a a tent peg through his temple. That's kind of gruesome. And then all of chapter five, is this song of praise that God is the deliverer of Egypt. All of chapter five is God, you are merciful. You are wonderful. You are great. There are no armies that can resist you. You are brilliant. All of chapter five is worship. And chapter five concludes by saying, and they had 40 years of rest. And chapter seven uh, chapter 6 opens by saying, Israel again did was evil in the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of the Midianites for seven years. Forty years of rest. Deborah and Barak and revival and victory and songs and worship. But somewhere in the season of rest, they began to slide. In their season of national peace, they became complacent and began to regress. And after the 40 years of rest, because of the regress, the scripture said God gave them into the hands of the Midianites for seven years. 40 years of rest. Sisera, dead, songs, 40 years of rest. In the rest, we got lazy and stale and cold. There's something in the human heart and condition that tends to backslide. We backslid. And then God gave us into the hands of our enemies for seven years. Forty years rest, seven years oppression. The people regressed. The narrative unrolls that God is disciplining his children. The the, the God who loves Israel is allowing Israel to be shaken up because Israel is dead asleep. 
And sometimes in our lives, God will bring discipline. Hebrews tells us he disciplines those whom he loves. He disciplines us. Things seem to be going so wrong. It's like God's put an alarm clock on your nap next to your ear, and it's super frustrating, but it's trying to tell you something. So God disciplines the Israelites with the Midianites, and the Scripture tells us that in this season, Israel began to live in caves and in strongholds because every time they planted a crop and they labored over that crop, as soon as harvest began, these Midianites and these Amalekites came with great numbers like locusts just flooding into the land. They brought their tents. They brought their animals. They just camped right on top of Israel and ate all of their food. The scripture said they ate all of their food and they took all of their animals. So Israel's hiding in caves. The people who once had victory 40 years ago, now they're hiding in caves hoping to save a little bit of produce. The scripture says that Israel then began to cry out. Now that seems like a common phrase or that seems insignificant in our language, but in, in the context of the scripture, this doesn't just mean they, they, they started to say, oh God, we hate people stealing our food. It wasn't like I laid over on bed and then I said, Lord, please let me have a snack tomorrow. The, they began to cry out means that they corporately gathered with intentionality. They set aside time to lift their voices and pray. And as they lift their voices and cry out, they're saying, God, these Midianites are stealing food from our children. God, these Midianites have stolen all of our livestock. God, these Amalekites, they come and they torture us and torment us, bring us deliverance. They cry and cry and cry. And eventually God sends a prophet. Now the prophet is unnamed. We know nothing of his history, nothing of his future. The scripture doesn't tell us who he is. Just tells us that in response to their crying out, God sent a guide, if you will. Follow the pilgrim language. God sent a guide, and the guide did two things. First, he reminded them of their history. The prophet said, you were brought out of Egypt. You think the Midianites are intimidating? Look at Egypt. You think these Amalekites are strong? Have you seen Pharaoh and his horses and his chariots? I brought you out of slavery. God brought you out of slavery. He brought you through the wilderness. And he said to you, you should not worship the gods of the Canaanites. So God took a people who were in slavery, oppressed, totally, totally broken, empty. Picked them up and he placed them in a land that flowed with milk and honey. And he said to them, You are now a people. You now have a territory. You are my possession and I am yours. Be faithful to me. The prophet gives them their history. He reminds them of where they've been and who they were called to be. And then he reveals to them their location. Now you worship Canaanite gods. You once were a people called, now you are a people backslidden, worshiping false deities. He reminds and he reveals. And then the scripture leaves us with this kind of question mark. Next week, it'll introduce Gideon to us. But it leaves us with this kind of question mark of, 
What is the response of Israel? When a man stands before the people and says, you worship false gods and everything that's going wrong is going wrong because of you. Because of what's in you. Do you like when people tell you that you're wrong? <laughs> no. So as the, as the prophet, the guide, reveals to them where they are and who they are and what position they're in, they're left to ponder. We're left to ponder what Israel's state should be, and they're left to ponder what God's next step will be, what's God's plan, strategy. Will God turn his back on Israel, or will he again raise up Deborah? Will he again bring a deliverer? And all of humanity is left to ponder this question. Will God turn his back on us because of our wickedness, or will he raise up a deliverer? And of course, that. The, the elevation of Jesus on the cross of Calvary is God's greatest declaration that I will be merciful and bring the deliverer. Now, if you follow the line of thought, we're pilgrims on a pilgrimage from the text of scripture. What we're finding is that Israel goes 40 years of rest, seven years back. All of Judges just circles this pattern. Why are we in Israel for 40 years? Like, or why are we in the wilderness for 40 years? Because we, We are often shaped by the patterns of this world and led by the desires of the flesh and pressed by culture and pressed by false ideologies, led by wicked philosophers, and we head in the wrong direction. If we embrace this construct that we are uh, on a pilgrimage trying to get to Christ's likeness, some of us are regressing. Israel is regressing. We can look to the text to try to draw a few observations that would help us Pivot. Everyone say pivot. In the business world, I'm a businessman. I don't know if you knew that. I ran a hot dog stand once. Um, in the business world, a pivot would be like probably one of the big pivots that people talk about is, is Netflix, right? Netflix. Um, remember when they used to send us our DVDs in the mail? That happened, kids. Um, they sent them in the mail. And then... Um, one day they decided that they were going to start streaming it online. That was a pivot. That was a, a shift of direction, a, rec- a realization of what was happening in the market. And they decided that they had to change. The greatest story of like a refusal to pivot is Blockbuster, right? Everyone always talks about Blockbuster. And, and they just, just straight down the drain because they were committed to the idea of the movie store. I was with a young man recently. A brother and we were talking about his, his walk and his journey with the Lord and where he was. And it was really clear that he was in a state of regress. He had had some hurt, some sin patterns and, and some, some people in his life had really offended him. And so he began to lean away from, from church to lean away from the disciplines. He had kind of entered into this stale state of regress. And as he's talking to me, I found myself beginning to try to coach him into a pivot. Coaching into a pivot, I'm saying, dude, you got to get back on your, on your feet. You need to get up and read the scripture. You need to confess your sin. You got to get things that you can, you need to show up to church. I don't care who offended you. Get your butt in church. Like I'm, I'm, I'm calling him a coaching pivot, pivot, pivot. Some of us this morning, you need to pivot. And, and if we acknowledge that we're sliding backwards and we need a pivot, What can we draw from this passage of Scripture to help us? One, the Scripture seems to teach plainly 
that God will allow things to feel like chaos out of discipline at times. Sometimes it feels like things are falling apart. Sometimes it feels like nothing's going right. And God, in the, in the disorganization and chaos, sometimes he removes his hand of peace to get your attention. And so first, hear me say, if you're here this morning and you're, you're in regression, you know it. If you don't know where you are, ask your wife. You know it. You've been stuck for years. You come to church. Maybe you do a five-minute devotional in the morning, but you, you're stuck. You're lifeless. You're going through the motions. You know it. The first thing I would suggest is that this scripture, this observation we can pull, is that God is looking for us to learn the art of solitude. Say it with me, solitude. Learn solitude. Learn. This is The Israelites are experiencing what I call forced solitude. Forced solitude is what I do to my children twice, actually three times yesterday. We call it time out. Go sit in the corner and think about what you did and where your life is going. Go with me here. You can backslide and live in rebellion and have God put you in time out. Or you could learn solitude. Solitude is a plain biblical spiritual discipline. We see Jesus practicing solitude. Solitude, I need you all to hear me say this because we don't teach this anymore. So so listen, because I promise you this would help. If you're like, Caleb, I am in regress. I know it. First thing, learn solitude. By solitude, I do not mean read your Bible and pray in the morning. You need to read your Bible and pray every morning. That's obvious. But as, as, as modern, busy people, we oftentimes have checklists. And the checklist is, if I read my Bible plan and said the four prayers that I said I was going to pray, then I did it and I can move on. Solitude is slow your butt down. Corey Tim Boone famously is quoted saying, if the devil, uh, she said something like, if the devil can't get you in sin, he will get you busy. So, so Paul says, the days are evil. Corey Tim Boone says, he'll get you busy. The idea of solitude is, is not coming with busyness in your heart to devotions. You guys follow what I mean by that? When you, when you come to your devotions with busyness in your heart, I got to read this, read this, read that, so I can get on with my day. That, that's, not, that's not exiting the flow of downstream regress. When you take your butt a chair and plop it down by the water and you sit down, and you sit long enough without an agenda. We're not talking about Eastern meditation, right? I'm not trying to empty my mind. I'm just sitting with God and allowing the thoughts that are in me to rise to the surface. I'm getting out of the flow of regress, and I'm getting what, for God's sake, what we would call perspective. Some of you have been in regress for years and you just keep doubling down and putting your head in the sand. Just don't look at it. Solitude forces you to look at it. I've, I've, I've experienced and I've been around, especially, especially men who just stay really busy. And when you start to talk about your soul, how is your soul? What's your marriage like? What's happening in your life? Are you growing in patience? Are you growing in frustration? They just seem to want to rush through the conversation and talk about their own productivity. Well, I, I had a great year of sales. I didn't ask you that. I asked you about your pilgrimage. Solitude. Again, it's, it's not coming with a list of things to do. Do your Bible plan. Pray your prayers. 
do the intercession. But at some point, at least a couple times a week, sit in the quiet and allow perspective to rush upon you. These Israelites are in forced solitude, living in caves. Actually, why we put people in jail? To make them think for a while. <laughs> um, we have to recover solitude. And, 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 and in solitude, hear the voice of God. Sit long enough to allow what's happening to rise. If you need to pivot, the, fir- the first thing I'm suggesting is, is embrace solitude. The second thing I think we can find in the text, if you need to pivot, I would suggest finding a guide. Okay, so in all the pilgrimage language, especially Christian pilgrimage language, there's this idea of disciplers. When Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, what is, he's not saying, literally walk behind me. He's saying, I will guide you into Christ's likeness. I will be your instructor. I'm three steps ahead of you, Timothy. Watch me as I grow and learn. As I'm becoming more like Christ, glean from me. I will forerun and allow you to come behind. Some of you need to learn to find and submit yourself to spiritual authority, to a guide. Now, I'm with you. There's a lot of wacky people in the world. I would not suggest finding your guide on YouTube. But as a church, y'all listen to me. As a church, if we are not the kind of people who can come into the room and say, I'm struggling and walk up to a brother or sister in the faith and say, I need, can, can we do coffee this week? Because I got some stuff I'm trying to process. I'm stuck. If we're not those kind of people, we're not doing church. Like the entire model of the church is to be disciples, making disciples. If you are, you know, 30, 40 years in the faith, it's a requirement that you guide other people. So I, I think we have a couple problems. I think we like to not admit when we're wrong. We're too arrogant to acknowledge. We skip solitude. So we keep projecting, I've got it all together. Let's talk about my produ- productivity. No, I don't want to talk about my marriage falling apart. I want to talk about my sales numbers. No, I don't want to talk about the way I treat my children. I want to talk about my golf score. We skip solitude, and then we're too arrogant to come to the place where we confess that we need Help. Every person in the room, you need to have access to people who have gone before you. Now, this prophet, when they cry out to the Lord, God sends a prophet to do what? Say, this is who you are, this is where you've been, and this is where you are now. You need people in your life who will look you in the face and say, man, you are selfish. Not called to be. God delivered you in his grace. God formed you. He he birthed you into his kingdom, but what you're doing right now is not in alignment with where you were called or where you're going. But if we're being honest, you just don't want to hear that. And if I'm being honest, there's seasons where I don't want to hear that. So how do we, how do we like seriously ponder what it means to, to, to have a disciple making culture? You cannot be embarrassed about saying to someone, man, I need help. We create platforms, right? Men's ministry is a platform. We have men's small groups to help with certain sins. These platforms, women's ministry is a platform. Our small groups 
our platforms. Wednesday night is an opportunity for you to meet people who have walked with Jesus longer than you. And if you think that small groups are just about high-fiving and having nice charcuterie boards, you missed the point. The point was that you rub shoulders with someone who's been on this journey longer than you and could say to you, follow me, I got you. Your marriage is falling apart. I've been through that. You're struggling with pornography, delivered of that. I can help you with that. You're, you're struggling with, with selfishness. Man, let me show you some scriptures. Let me help you. You've got to rub shoulders with people who have walked with Jesus longer, faithfully, and you've got to be willing to, to listen. Now, let me say this one word of warning. Do not, do not ask me to coffee and sit there and lie to my face about how you're doing. Waste of my time. Okay, and I'm speaking on behalf of all, all the people in the room. When I, and I do this, I promise you, I'm not, I'm not, not I'm not faking. There, maybe two months ago, I'm struggling with some things, really struggling with some things. And so I call an elder and I say, man, can you do lunch with me this week? I need, I just, I'm struggling. I'm sinking. I'm, I'm not making progress here. And when I sit down with that elder, I don't shoot the breeze for 35 minutes. You gotta be honest. And, and you can't paint everything in a light that makes you look good. What's the point of that? You want to just keep living in your slump? Man, I get in scenarios all the time where people want to just defend themselves and paint themselves in the best light. And it's like, man, if that's what you want to do, go home and watch Netflix. I don't, I don't, I don't know how we can actually journey towards Christ's likeness if we're not willing to be truthful. And so I sit down with the elder and I got to say, this is what I did and this is what I said and this is how I felt. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm repenting and confessing and, and what do you think? How do I need to respond? What needs to change in me? I've got to be transparent. There's no such thing as discipleship without transparency and honesty. It's just not. So God sends a prophet to the people of Israel who had 40 years of rest and seven years of oppression. And the prophet says, let me tell you who you were and let me tell you where you are. Now from there, the people have a decision to make. This is the last thing I want to say, okay? Learn solitude. Learn to submit yourself to the, to, the, to the leadership of a guide. Get under someone's tutelage. Humble yourself, man. No one in the room's made it. Promise you. Solitude. Submit yourself to discipleship. The, the third thing that you need to do is you need to learn confession. Okay? Now, let me take five minutes and explain to you why we have confession wildly wrong in Western culture. We've allowed name it, claim it kind of prosperity gospel people to redefine for us what the word confession means. Confession, biblically speaking, does not mean to claim you have something you don't have. Confession, biblically speaking, the Greek literally means to agree with God. And so here's the idea of confession. When the man or woman of God, the guide says to me, Caleb, I think that you allowed your pride to lead you to a scenario where you felt like you had to defend yourself and prove something Rather than walking in humility, confession is agreeing with what God says about what I did. Confession's not claiming that I have a BMW when everyone knows I drive a 2006 Navigator that the transmission's about to fall out the bottom. Right? Confession is not claiming that I am perfect and upright and I'm, man, there's a, there's a place to remind yourself of the gospel. There's a place for saying, Even though I'm wrestling here, I'm clean in Jesus. And even though I feel empty, I'm full of God's love. And even though I 
feel unworthy. God calls me his beloved. That is agreeing with what God says about me from the scriptures. It's not confessing something that's not true. But when I find myself in a backslidden place of regression and people begin to say to me, dude, you have an issue with selfishness or the spirit of God begins to convict me. Confession is agreeing with what God says. You can't squirm. You can't squirm your whole life. If the pilgrimage is not about getting to Mecca, if the pilgrimage is not about arriving at the destination that we call heaven, if the pilgrimage is arriving to a position where I am Christ-like and in union with Christ in such a way that the world can't shake me out of it, then I've got to be willing to confess the areas of my life where I'm missing it. Own it. The pivot has to start with solitude, guides, finding guides. You can find guides through through books. I get some of us can process that way, but most of us need skin on skin, leadership and discipleship, and then it's from confession. I acknowledge that I've not yet made it. and I acknowledge that I'm wrong in these areas. I acknowledge that I've allowed my flesh to lead. If we can't do that, all of our lives will be regression. C.S. Lewis um, tells this story of when he first got off, uh, got off a bus to go to Oxford for the first time. And he got off the bus and he began to look at the landscape and he was so unimpressed. If you can imagine, he's this academic man, the scholar. He loves libraries and historical artifacts. And he looks out over a city that looks poor and desperate and like kind of street markets and there's nothing glamorous about it. And his heart sinks as he steps off the bus. He takes two, three steps, and then he looks back over his shoulder and realizes Oxford's that way. That's regression. Emma, if you'd come for me, and you go ahead and stand to your feet. We'll get ready to close. Man, you got to either be honest with where you are or, or keep living in denial. I'm just, I'm begging you, you quit looking at the wrong, the wrong city street. Start looking at Jesus. Start falling in love with the, with the person of Jesus again. Acknowledge that what we're called to is not a life of just kind of humdrum making it through, but you're called to a pilgrimage of looking more like Jesus, expressing the life of Jesus in the earth, experiencing Jesus's own life in intimacy, and then manifesting it to your, to your children and your coworkers and your neighbors. You should be constantly growing in Christ's likeness. You're, you're, you're journeying whether you want to or not. So this morning, I just want to sing for a minute. We'll open the altars, altar team, if you want to get in place. And if you just feel stuck, if you're like, man, I don't, I don't know why, I don't know what's going on, but I just feel stuck. I feel like I'm backsliding. I feel frustrated, like I can't get forward. If that's you, we want to invite you, man. Just come kneel in the altar. Just be in the presence of the Lord. Maybe confess sin if you need to confess sin. The altar's open if that's you, if you want to come.